0: Hi, Frederick. Good to talk to you and uh, congratulations on your recent uh,
1: success with the conference in Stockholm. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, you were there as a speaker, and the conference we're talking about is the Nordic Privacy Arena. I was so busy during this conference I should say so I, I didn't really see or hear everything because I was running around uh, arranging stuff so I, I heard the, the beginning and the end of your speech so maybe you <laughs> want to maybe you probably, wanna remind best, me.
0: The, you probably heard the best bits that more than likely
1: <laughs> yeah yeah but I remember b- before the, the conference we talked about um, the report on the privacy shield because they have an an Annual report the commission does together I think with the American authorities, and basically yes. what they said was it's working. They did. Um, what was
0: very helpful of the commission was the fact that they did indeed publish the report one week before the conference where I was speaking. So um, yes, at, at least I did have something to tell the three uh, hundred odd um, security experts that were in the room. Uh, but it was. What I found quite striking in the report was what came across when you sort of reread it, because at first it refers to the fact that the privacy shield is rated as being speech marks adequate. Yes. Post speech marks. That's their rating for its first twelve months of full operation. And at first you think, oh, oh, so that, that, that's pretty good. It's it's working, it's adequate, there are no problems. But then you think of the significance of what this thing is doing. It's governing how EU citizens' data is being transmitted and stored in the United States, where 85% of the world's cloud storage is based, uh, not to mention some of the world's biggest and most well-funded security services. So when you then think, okay, this incredibly important structure that is complying with the decisions uh, coming out of the European court after the Schrems decision... And indeed putting into effect what the European Commission has asked for in respect of EU citizens data in the US. You know, it, it, it's an important structure. This isn't just a, um, a fig leaf in theory. It's, you know, it, it, it should be an important structure in practice uh, and has an impact on the data that, let's face it, for the majority of EU citizens, they all use um Many of the US product, be it, you know, um, if if you're listening to this podcast on an iPhone um, or an iPad, you know, you're probably using the services there. Um, If you've got a Facebook account, a Twitter account, an Instagram account, okay, the servers are based in. Dublin um, or uh, very often within uh, the Republic of Ireland but there may still be in certain circumstances transfers of data to the United States and that's what this is in effect covering and there are now two and a half thousand businesses and organizations registered on the privacy shield and when you think we're rating this whole structure as adequate that's is, is that really enough it's not exactly a ringing endorsement if you saw on a film poster it said Adequate, yeah, yeah. two yeah. stars out yeah. of five. Would you really want to go and yeah. part with your hard earned money to go and see that movie?
1: Yeah, it, it is challenged and it will probably continue to, to be challenged. And uh, I'm not at all convinced it's going to be a long term solution, but uh, for now, it seems they okay. So, what they're saying is it's adequate, and that's what we have to to go by,
0: indeed. As, but as I,
1: it stands, I, I think. It's a matter
0: of time until it ends up either being struck down in some way, shape or form, either from something from the US or by another decision within the European court or by the commission, even deciding that it isn't sufficiently rigorous. Um, Or so it could come down through decisions um, or there could just be a, a general lack of confidence in it. The, the, the likelihood of this lasting as long as the safe harbor did, which was the best part of 15 years, I really don't see the Privacy Shield act lasting anything like that long. And I think we have to take it on a, no, no, almost I'm, a year-by-year year basis sort of thing.
1: I, I agree. And it's easy to imagine uh, some kind of scandal where uh, data gets in the hands of American authorities or companies uh, and there will be an outcry and people will uh, call for changes, so.
0: Yes, and I think the, the, the Equifax um, data breach is a good example of that. Yes. Um, there have been a number of US corporations of which Equifax is only the most recent uh, mm-hmm. that have suffered large-scale data protection breaches that have affected EU citizens because the data has been collected far and wide on a global basis and where there is a lack of redress for people outside of the US. I mean, people within the US are probably going to end up joining class actions of various different types, but it becomes more difficult to administer and run those sorts of schemes from other jurisdictions. Uh, and it, you can sort of see that the, the collective difficulties that will mount if we continue to get breaches of this type and when I say this type you know stuff like Equifax targets etc and where those who are overseas do not have any adequate means of redress when <sighs> This scheme was supposed to provide that through the ombudsperson scheme and through the um, the other mechanisms within the shield. Then you you start to think, well, at, at, at that point where people lose faith in it, yeah. um, that that's where it will then just need to be replaced with something that is more rigorous. But that would, of course, be subject to negotiation between the commission and uh, the U.S. presidential administration.
1: And uh, speaking of the Equifax leak, one of our keynote speakers was actually... Uh, testifying before the Senate, I think, on that leak, just weeks or days before the conference, uh, Mark Rothenberg of uh, EPIC. And um, he actually opened the whole conference with a a speech about data protection and uh, democracy, which Mm. I think was uh, also pretty timely because just days after the conference, we had this... um, the hearing before congress in the us with uh, i think google facebook and so on and a lot of talk about how do we, do we regulate these uh, entities uh, how and how do they affect the democratic institutions with fake news and and all that stuff so yes and, and one of the big things epic has worked on i think is uh, algorithmic transparency and accountability, and uh, I think that that area is really interesting and it's going to be a big topic for next year's conference, I think, as well.
0: Yes, and I think that would re- reflect the general direction of travel in terms of algorithms, yes. AI, machine yes. machine learning and big data.
1: Yes, we tried to touch upon that a little bit in the panels and so on, but it's kind of tricky to get in depth with it when you have like 20 minutes and five people on, on stage and so on. but. We try to address that a little bit and uh, I think that's a really interesting development and, and I was really happy to have him uh, come over to Stockholm to to talk about yes. their, their work. What was your, it, your impressions?
0: I, I was very impressed and it, it, he was a very, very effective speaker when he's coming at it from his uh, experience having actually... You know, you know, testified at the Supreme Court on a number of occasions. And, uh, and, and you know, when he's actually represented, I should say, uh, clients in front of the Supreme Court, Yes, you know, clearly um, at the active, very active um, and at the forefront of these developments in the United States. And therefore, his perspective, Well, I think it was important to have that global perspective right at the start of the conference. Yes. And the the presentation he gave looking at the impact on the U.S. presidential election 12 months ago and looking at the developments since um, it was good to give it that level of perspective, particularly when, as you say, we've then had stories of. you know, huge numbers of potentially fake um, accounts on Twitter that are actually based in uh, Russia, um, producing news um, con- and content and f- speech marks, fake news, closed speech marks yeah. uh, that could have influenced people in the US, and indeed they're saying could have influenced people in the UK when it came to our uh, referendum on the EU in 2016, and possibly in our general election in 2017. Um it it's it's a very worrying development. You know, we're almost looking at the, the, the very frightening level of it, you're sort of saying, is this the sort of hacking of democracy? Yeah, however, I think we need to sort of stand back uh, and with sort of cool, calm heads on this as well. The evidence that someone might be trying to influence content on Facebook or Twitter is indeed worrying and Facebook are in, <clears throat> have actually taken direct action to cooperate with the um, special prosecutor in the United States who's looking into this by providing information to them uh, to support the, uh, the prosecutor in that ongoing investigation. But just because it has proved that there could have been a, a large volume of content on there that was being put on from a, uh, a foreign state... Doesn't necessarily mean that people then, you know, went ahead and acted and voted accordingly. Um, I think we have to be very, very careful of that assumption. I think there's a there's an almost a uh, a rush to sort of say, oh well, this invalidates the, the U.S. presidential election last year. It invalidates the EU referendum in the UK yeah. um, because oh, people are making their decisions not based on um, on the facts. But you think, well, when was the last time that uh, voters actually Um, rationally made a decision based on the facts. It's, it's, uh, you know, democracy is this thing where people are entitled to make their views based on the conversations they have with friends and family and colleagues when they look at multiple sources of news, be it on the TV and the written print, online and social media, uh, and then they will reach their own views. And I, I think it is dangerous to assume that just because there may have been um, oh, you know, some of the things on Facebook or, or, or online may not have been entirely trustworthy. Well, do we necessarily think that the communications issued by uh, political parties are necessarily trustworthy? Um, probably not. They you know? <laughs> aren't necessarily um, representative of, uh, of facts. And I, I think we just have to remember that people will... People will make the decisions they will make, and you cannot say that it is entirely attributable to just one use or one article. We're talking about cumulative decision-making over a period of many months.
1: But but I think uh, one of the points he raises is one that uh, a lot of others raise as well. You know, Angela Merkel and uh, uh, Russian politicians, and I even heard it in in Sweden. um, People are saying that we need more transparency. We need to understand how the algorithms that dictate what we see and here uh, how they work and with the gdpr we also need to know uh, how they how they work when they profile us or when they are used to uh, for automated decisions so i think that's that's a big point and uh, right now we don't really know how facebook's algorithms work or twitter's or or google's and i think there's a big pressure right now uh, for those companies to clean up their content and also to be to be more tra- transparent somehow, and I think mm-hmm. that that 's going to be a big battle uh, not just the coming year but uh, probably throughout our lifetimes. I think we will we, we had a little talk about this that was actually one of the main points uh, or the highlights for me during this conference it was Mark Rothenberg. Um, the guy from Google and a couple of others, we had a drink afterwards and we talked about the future and, and privacy and regulation and technology. And we we uh, talked a little bit about the development of the free press mm. and how that started being sort of wild west, no, no regulation at all. Um, very similar to now, you know, fake news, uh, very commercial, very opaque, uh, very scandalous. And how it then... There was a mix of regulation and self-regulation and professionalism and um, also changed consumer behavior. And mm. now we have it kind of. Uh, we have checks and balances, and it's uh, working reasonably well. Not perfect, uh, as we've seen with uh, just recently the, the Me Too campaign and. Um, mm. We have a big discussion about the ethics of the press regarding that. Uh, should should they name the people that are accused for things they may or may have not done ten years ago? Who knows? But uh, so yes. you know, there are some similarities, but but uh, I think we will see big reforms and and um, uh, legal battles over you know privacy versus free speech when it comes to these platforms, mm. and, and that's been boiling for a long time, but now just you know past months i've seen so many uh, proposals and and uh, bold statements by politicians that i think the pressure is really increasing right now and i I don't think it's a zero-sum game either i think you can improve both uh, freedom of speech and privacy at the same time yes Uh, but you of course when uh, the thing is people still have this knee-jerk reaction that that uh, anytime you you even mention or suggest uh, regulating something, people see it as censorship and, and limitation of freedom of speech. But the thing is, if you do nothing, I think that could be as detrimental, because then you're in the hands of all these, I don't know, uh, Russian hackers or criminals or uh, terror networks, what, what have you, or companies mm. for that matter. So I think that's going to be a, um, yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we have some. Uh, it, 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 it is a growing problem, and I think it was actually interesting. I was talking to Jennifer Baker, who was the, the conference chair, yes, yes. Uh, and we were talking about media as a whole. And one of the problems at the moment is that there is the proliferation of different voices and news sources online, the, the provenance of which sometimes isn't entirely clear. You know, you aren't necessarily sure who owns that website or who owns that news source and where it's coming from yeah. and as the the old more conventional media um, struggles with its um, more traditional ways of generating money and revenue yeah. and you have resources being cut back and journalists being made redundant and publications closing and titles closing, yeah. you're, it's almost like your your sphere and avenue of trusted verifiable news sources continues to be reduced. Um, and that becomes a problem Um, where you know there's only very few news sites that have decided okay we'll go behind a paywall and we'll be we will continue to sustain ourselves in this way Uh, where meanwhile an awful lot are reduced to giving away their content for free and their advertising numbers fall and the uh, traffic to their websites fall and their print copies end up being um, cut and the quality of the product accordingly is diminished and the real quality independent investigative journalism falls away because there simply isn't the money there to pay a salary to a journalist to work for a few months on a really good story um you know good investigative journalism doesn't uh produce itself it takes a hell of a lot of effort and um you have to look at some of the um uh, movies that have shown that quite um, effectively if you think all oh, the president's men from the 1970s you know mm. um, the, the story that brought down the US government um, that that was all through the hard work and determination of a couple of journalists and uh, when you haven't got the resources and the people able to do that then uh, you know a key level of accountability is lost. Don't forget, um, and it's interesting, there's an awful lot of people comparing what's currently happening in the U.S. in in 2017 with um, Watergate and what happened in the mid-1970s in the U.S., and don't forget that in the U.S. Uh, The president, uh, President Nixon, fired the special prosecutor who was looking into him. But because of the stories and investigation that carried on, um, Congress was still able to impeach him eventually. But you have to ask yourself if you then haven't got um, a a free press with the resources and teeth to carry on doing this sort of stuff. um, Would. What could be the outcome now? You know, where you only have a few newspapers and they're worried, and they're, you know, their proprietors are worried. Um, what? Yeah. And, yeah would, and, would you and, have that effective um, check on 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 government government that we had uh, as far ago as the nineteen seventies?
1: Yeah. And even even if there will will be some kind of uh, force that fills the shoes of the old media, how do you regulate it? Because back then you could uh, hold a the publisher accountable you knew where they they had their physical location you could go there with a paper saying you know whatever uh, mm. or arrest them and so on and and thus you could also give them relative freedom and now with all this as you say you don't know who's behind uh and of, oftentimes it's uh, users themselves single mm. users uh who are you know who knows where in the world and if you have a problem where you have, I don't know, slander or threats or hate speech and you have to reach out to, to those singular users how do you go about that? How do you hold them accountable? And that's a big problem for legislators. One option is to hold the companies accountable, but so far it's kind of we still live with this regulation that says, you know, it, it stems from America I think uh, the, um, the so-called CDA 230 the regulation mm. that says that uh, if you're not um, well, basically if if you're not editing content, you're not accountable or responsible for for the content so yes. so Facebook for example, isn't responsible for the user's content, so maybe they try to clean things up, but mm. actually. Uh, the irony is that if they clean up too much and they, they meddle too much with it, they that protection or that immunity could fall, and so they would be seen as uh, responsible or accountable for it. so, yes. so maybe they, they don't want to get too involved with that but and, well, and, and, and during this drink we had, we um, actually talked a little bit about this piece of legislation, and uh, Rothenberg, I recall, was actually not that big of a fan. Um, I think he and a couple of his colleagues, I know for sure one of them, Daniel Citron, uh, recently suggested that it should be fixed or amended somehow or changed. Mm. Not completely, you know, thrown out through the window, but but, um, maybe there should be some kind of exceptions where uh, companies should be held accountable for content.
0: Yeah, Well, I I wish now that i would found you um, wherever wherever the drink was taking place. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) That that was, was, uh, I mean, there were so many that I was really happy with that because there there were so many discussions like that, Uh, even though I was really, really busy, I noticed them and I kind of went in and out and talked to people here and there, and uh, there were so many really uh, vivid conversations going on. And this was one of them, but that was kind of uh, late Monday night and it was kind of random. We just ended up in, um, you know, talking after, after the dinner. So,
0: yeah, yeah. because, but because, because my, my contribution to that, to that discussion would have been, we had one, um, quite high profile libel case in the UK a few years ago. Stop, stop me if this is one that we've discussed before, Sure, but, um, uh, in the UK we had a quite high-profile libel action that followed uh, a wide-ranging discussion that people had had on Twitter. And it started after in 2012, just after the um, Jimmy Savile allegations uh, in the UK. Um, there were similar allegations made about a um, retired politician, mm. retired Conservative um, uh, treasurer. and. These allegations went on for a couple of weeks, and then the person who'd made the allegations, it it was found pretty quickly that they had um, been lying. And the newspaper, sorry, the the news program, the BBC news program that had published and and reported on these allegations made a full retraction, full apology, were very sorry. But in the meantime, there had been over 60,000 comments and retweets on Twitter over the course of about 10 days. And the person, Lord Irvine, who had been at the center of these um, uh, allegations, he said, right, I'm going to do something about this. I'm one of the few people with the financial resources who can do something about this. So he instructed his lawyers and they ended up writing to all of the different people involved. And they said to all of those Twitter users who had... um, commented in some way who had less than sort of about, I think it was about a thousand followers they put the limit up. So if you've got a thousand followers or less, we aren't worried. You make a, if you just say you're sorry and you put a retraction on Twitter, I'm very sorry, I didn't mean to it. And then you make a donation to charity. We will then say no more about this episode. But then he said, for those with more than 10,000 followers, you are people with significant weight on social media and you should have um, had more care and thought before retweeting um, news about these things or making comment yourself about them. So there were a number of um, high profile celebrities with, for example, Twitter accounts with tens of thousands of followers who end, he ended up getting in touch with. Yes. And they had to make a substantial settlement, um, you know, a pre-action out of court, but they had to make a settlement, uh, which he then donated to charity. But he said, the whole point here is that they should have thought about what they did. And there was, um, funny enough, one celebrity who is actually the, the wife of the speaker of the House of Commons, a lady called Sally Burko. she had sent a simple tweet saying, why, why is Lord Irvine trending? Um, hash- and then she put up an emoji, innocent face. Um, uh, is it to say sort of, oh, I wonder why, when everyone knew full well why this chap was trending on Twitter. So, you know, it wasn't even taking up the full 140 characters. We're only looking at a fairly small tweet. But that went because she wouldn't pay. That went all the way to the high court. Uh, She lost. She had to pay um, Lord Irvine's costs, which were, of course, in the tens of thousands of pounds by this point, and then make a uh, settlement payment as well. So I think it was something like 70 or 80 thousand pounds costs plus an undisclosed sum paid um, in settlement of the action. Um, to Lord Irvine. And it kind of showed there that um, you're you're quite right in, in, in the discussion that you were having after the conference, because you, really there is no recourse for people unless they happen to have vast amounts of money they can throw at something like this. Not to mention the time. You know, the guy's retired. He could exactly. set his lawyers on this and deal with it. The vast majority of people do not have the time or resources. And they can find that their, you know, their, their, their business, their livelihoods can be affected by some of the things might be said or done online that are entirely untrue and malicious or sometimes even, you know, directed at the wrong
1: person. Exactly. And I, <laughs> that, that's why I mentioned Me, the Me Too campaign because I think that's mm-hmm. the most recent example where people are getting into a lot of trouble and um, there's no redress. There's, uh, I mean, in practice, in the reality is for most people. There is just no way to defend yourself. Mm. Indeed, uh, and the, the the legislators or the legal system has completely failed here. I, I think there, yes. there's there's no way. I mean, you have in theory the the option to sue yourself, or you could, in, at least in Sweden, you could report it to the police. But it's it's very very rare that that uh, they will investigate mm. these kind of uh, potential crimes. So so I think that's a really big issue, and I. I haven't seen anything that kind of points in the in the direction to you know to fixing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides, maybe I think, for me personally, I I think that technology is going to play play a big part in this, not mm-hmm. not necessarily the law itself. I think legal solutions, um, uh, algorithms that de- detect hate speech or, or slander and uh, online dispute resolu- resolution mm-hmm. systems, things like that. Uh, because the, the traditional way of, you know, reporting something or going to court in each singular case, mm-hmm. uh, I just don't see that happening.
0: Well, just, just with regards to, as you say, some of the concerns over the Too thing, I should, first of all, add. Uh, And preface any comments here that um, where these things have happened and they have already been proved and verified to be true very often by the vast number of individuals coming forward by talking about truly reprehensible and and disgusting acts that have no place in
1: um,
0: in, in today's society. But um, there has been an interesting development in that this week in the UK. Um, We had a uh, member of the um, Scottish government, not Scottish, member of the Welsh government, the Welsh Assembly. Um, he had some allegations made against him last week mm. and ended up resigning from his post. Um, however, it turns out that the alle- basically this man was told, you know, allegations have been made against you. Um, pressure was put on him. He resigned. He was then, uh, sadly, he committed suicide yeah, earlier this week. Yeah. And it's now come out today that this man was never actually told what the allegations were, hmm. what it was he was being accused of, but um, clearly his mental state was such, and such is that the climate at the moment, unfortunately, that he was under sufficient pressure to end up doing um, t- t- taking the rather drastic action that he did this week. Um, but I, while you know some of these allegations things are are, are so deplorable, we do have to remember that um, there, there is still. A right to innocence until people are proven guilty
1: yes and even if you Due
0: process has to apply no yes, matter what yes. you
1: know. because otherwise you have um, something you don't really have the, the rule of law anymore you have the mm-hmm. rule of law of what you call it you have a, in Sweden we call it a mob you know the, the yes. social media mob yeah which it's a witch hunt
0: almost witch um, hunt.
1: yeah that was uh, the I don't know. I don't know if you follow South Park, but their latest <laughs> episode was um, a Halloween episode, and they one of the parents actually turned to into a, a literal witch, and, and they had to chase uh, the witch, yeah. and so they they call it. This is almost like a witch pursuit thing yes you know? and the yeah. whole thing was obviously about the me too campaign but they they never really addressed it um, head, head on but uh, yeah but obviously I I completely agree and I think it's a given to say that the me too campaign is about something very serious and deplorable as you say but I think you can have two things in mind at the same time it's two two completely different discussions and I don't really mention or talk about the MeToo campaign uh, uh, those crimes or those problems because it's not my area of work. It's not, I'm not mm. well-versed in it. So, so um, I just look at it from a freedom of speech and, and privacy point of view. And in that regard, I can see some really big problems here mm. because, uh, as you say, you have the right to be uh, assumed innocent until proven guilty, and it's also it's the um, authorities the police and the courts who decide who's guilty and not and nobody else. And even so, even if you're found guilty, is it reasonable? I mean, let's let's talk about the, the old media again. The old media wouldn't uh, you're under their I mean maybe it's this is this might be differ in the UK from from, from Sweden because we, we are very restrictive. But in Sweden they wouldn't name a person who was um who had committed a, a crime like this, uh, especially not if it was like let's say ten years ago, or if the person wasn't a politician or a a, a person carrying some weight in society. So, so even even if the person was guilty, um, the media wouldn't see a reason to to name the person, you know. Yes. Uh, except for for in in certain circumstances. But the Twitter mob obviously doesn't. Um, think like that no and
0: it it, it, one of mean one of the things is that uh, in in the UK there is a the law is very much that where these allegations are reported then the person making the allegations will have a right to anonymity for life Mm. and oh, in Mm. perpetuity I should say whereas the um, uh, the alleged perpetrator um, their details can be published and this has sometimes led to people say, oh, well, the system's not fair. And they say, oh, my career's been ruined because no. this allegation was made and they got to a trial and was thrown out. Well, you know, um, but it's kind of been turned on its head on this occasion because, of course, these allegations are being made by individuals who have ha- had no alternative but to end up going public um, because, they have, in certain certain circumstances, either reported it to organizations that have tried to either do nothing or sit on it or hush it up, um, or in some instances, they reported it to the police who then haven't done it, I think. But yeah. when you then have, you know, dozens of people coming forward saying, well, actually, we're all saying the same thing and we've not been in collusion here, but the fact we're all saying the same thing kind of adds up to something, i.e. overwhelming um, evidence, um, which is very, very true. Uh, but it regardless and even going back to where this story came from which is um, uh, Mr. Weinstein in the US um, I I hope that charges are brought against him criminal charges and that he stands in a court of law and that um, overwhelming evidence is found against him and um, he ends up being um, punished accordingly Um, I I think that has to happen um, because we still have to apply um, the the rule of law in in these instances. Yes. So let's get the, the the victims who have suffered in these circumstances. Then let's get them true justice. Let's show justice at work. Um, and if it turns out that the uh, the justice system is not able to deliver on that, well, in that case, we need to look at um, reform. But let's see what our existing laws can do. Um, regrettably, it does take time, as do these. All these things always do due do process and everything, but yeah. you know, let let us let, let, allow um, the uh, the criminal justice system to uh, to do its work. Um, let's have people give evidence and have it believed um, and verified and corroborated, and um, uh, yeah, the the truth will out on, on all of these things. And um, I hope that uh, uh, those who have been wronged are uh, able to uh, to see that uh, justice is properly administered.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think justice is working, at least in Sweden, pretty poorly in both cases, both situations. First, you have mm-hmm. the issue where um, harassment or, or other offenses, rape cases, aren't even investigated. And then when you have a, uh, this situation we have now with the MeToo campaign, Slander on hate online is uh, isn't investigated, and also in this case, I think you have a problem with accountability because uh, in the old times, you as I said, you could always uh, complain against the publisher, but mm. now, but now the publisher, uh, I mean, F- Facebook isn't really a publisher, but sort of uh, mm. is, isn't isn't accountable or responsible for it, and the users, uh, it's very difficult to find them, them, every single user. Yes. So, so yeah. And so, there's a problem both in practice, you know, in terms of tools to to investigate and hold people accountable, but also in mm. the legislation it, itself. And it's very tricky now to change this because just in in, the, in a matter of a decade, uh, some very very big companies have have um, just exploded on the market, and mm. completely new new ways of consuming information have emerged. And the the legal system hasn't really adapted, and now when this is in place, it's, it's pretty difficult to to say, okay, we're gonna uh, scrap the CDA two hundred and thirty, we're gonna uh, hold Google accountable for every single word, you know, uh, on the, on their mm. website and so on. That's very difficult to do now, and I'm. It's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out. But uh, yeah, it's mm. for for sure a challenge for for the people in Brussels and it says- in the US.
0: And this is, going to, this is going to run and run and run, and I think, yeah, actually, yeah. it would make a good subject for a, uh, a podcast on its own um, in the not-too-distant future. And, and I think it's – I would recommend, actually, that we bring in one of my colleagues, um, yeah. Heather Anson, who is a U.S.-qualified attorney yes. uh, and has done a lot of research and spoken at conferences and events on this subject. And I think it's something that it would be good to get a, a few different viewpoints yeah, yeah. on yeah. as well
1: we, we can, um, we, because we, it's it, – we could yeah, it, reach out to Per Meierdierks from from um, Google Germany, who was at the conference as well, because he had some interesting thoughts on how Google had emerged and how they looked at uh, privacy and, and data protection in the past and how they do it now and how this has mm-hmm. changed. And that was really illuminating. I, I wish we could have had that. This was kind of off stage, but I wish we could have had that conversation on stage. So. Yes. yes yeah. Yeah. But that, that's how it always goes. But. Um, otherwise any other impressions from the um, the conference i mean we had two days packed with i think we had 35 sessions so we're not going to go through all of them no. <laughs> was, was there anything else that you wanted to touch upon
0: well i i was very impressed with um finn from uh, from oslo his presentation on um the work that um his organization the uh, uh, digital services section at the norwegian consumer council uh, the work that they have done on uh, research into um, wearable technology. Um, I mean, he, he first of all demonstrated the, uh, the Kayla uh, doll and how easily that yes. can be hacked. And in effect, it means that you, you are putting a listening device or a bug into your uh, child's playpen or, or bedroom, and then it can be so easily hacked by anyone just walking along outside with a uh, Bluetooth-enabled device um, and he did a live hack of this yes. in the auditorium yes. with this accursed doll. Um, it was interesting just show that anyone in the room um, with a smartphone was able to sync with it and take control of it. And um, it, when we're talking here about such basic safety measures that really should have been put in place, yeah. um, the mind really does boggle. Um, so no wonder it's been withdrawn from a number of countries, but it was... Um, his organization that first blew the whistle on this thing. And uh, I was also talking to him about some of the work that they've done on wearable tech and comparing, um, and I'm I'm not going to mention the actual brands involved, but they've recently been um, uh, publishing some research on different wearable, when I say wearable, you know, stuff like the um, fitness bands that track how many steps you've done and
1: uh, how many calories
0: you've burned. um,
1: Because, Full disclosure: um, We actually had dinner before the conference. I think you and me and Finn had dinner at it the is. table yes. the, uh, <laughs> Sunday night, and I think we <laughs> talked about your your was it your Fitbit watch or no? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So
0: we, we were talking about that, and, and indeed, because I'd flown in from uh, Bucharest that day, I had, a, I had a fairly good step total by the end of the day, having traipsed around a few airports. Yeah. But um, uh, it was it was interesting sort of comparing notes on the levels and features and security of, um, I think there was four different brands that they'd done a comparable table of. And um, one of the brands, and it wasn't Fitbit, I hasten to add, um, had come out, didn't look particularly, um, you know, didn't come out very well from this sort of table basically showing how um, it it wasn't particularly storing data in a very safe or secure manner. And then what it did with that data wasn't particularly transparent either. And um, we were discussing uh, the yeah, the findings, and obviously, the, having published this stuff the previous week, one of these fitness tracker uh, manufacturers um, wasn't particularly happy and had contacted his office in a fairly vocal, um, aggressive manner. Um, and we had a conversation. I, I, I was very much of the view that it was a little bit, you know, too little, too late from this particular manufacturer. Because I said, look, have I'm sure you've written or attempted to contact these people while you've carried out the research. And he said, well, yes, we did. And I said, did you tell them what your results were going to be? He said, yes, we did. Um, and he said, so it's basically they weren't wanting to listen or engage until you published and then got upset with the backlash. He said, yes. So <laughs> um, it, it kind of proved the point. And I said, look, particularly when, um, uh, you know, when you know, I've, I've been to conferences where uh, people have highlighted these problems and I was telling him about the." I was telling so talking to Finn about the Computers Privacy and Data Protection Conference in Brussels in January, where a gentleman had held up the Kaladon and highlighted the issues. And Finn turned around and said, yes, that was me. I went, oh, right, OK. And it turned out he'd shaved the beard off in the intervening period. Um, so I didn't recognise him. Um, uh, yeah, um, uh, him. But, yeah, it was uh, – I didn't quite recognise him. But, yeah, I said, look, when, when someone's been as public as you, speaking on different platforms, talking about these problems – um, then to then argue that you're selling a product and you aren't aware of these risks um, is is a very difficult place for that manufacturer to be. You that you then look and say, well, you know, um, if if you're so confident in the security of this, well, why don't you provide transparently your privacy impact assessment to prove how um, uh, what good security is and that you asked the questions that you needed to and that you were satisfied that the the correct security measures were in place. And of course, very often an organisation like that won't have a publicly available privacy impact assessment if it even has one at all and um, that that's the answer to your question pretty much
1: yeah. <laughs> speaking speaking of conferences um there's the what's it called the IAPP summit in Brussels right now a uh, couple of my my colleagues are there so i saw they were talking about uh, again algorithms and um transparency this morning so the, the discussions are ongoing, and I was uh, I was happy we could bring some of this to to Stockholm actually because usually you have to kind of go to those places, you know, uh, Brussels mm. or New York or London. Uh, yeah, place. and also well, also I would say I was pretty. I mean, I don't want to. It's tricky to single out sessions because you. I mean, I, I I was really happy with a lot of the speakers, but one that stood out to me was uh, uh, Gamma Clavel, who was talking about. Uh, uh, smart cities or safe cities and surveillance, and uh, the ethics of it and technology of it, and the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is something I see come up again and again you know, the, the future of uh, smart cities and uh, crime prevention, and uh, you know, making healthcare uh, more efficient and traffic flow better, and uh, saving energy and all that. But yes, potentially at the cost of privacy. So, I think her. her um, speech was brilliant i think and i I'm, I'm not sure but we might be able to get some of these speeches out on, on video soon for for those interested but i think um for me that was a highlight for sure yeah that would be fantastic
0: and um yeah if you, if if if, if, uh, if it is possible to do that and then up on YouTube or another service. Yeah, then, um, exactly. please, please do let me know, and I'll make sure that um, I, yeah. I'll retweet them to. Uh, yeah. I'm almost at ten thousand followers now on Twitter. Now, so I'll oh, be wow. happy to retweet it and make sure that yeah, um, cool. we uh, we get that that footage as far and wide as possible because it was a really good, high quality conference. And when you think that it, it was such good stuff, and only that the people in the room are able to to see it more often than not. So, I'm pleased to hear that it was being recorded. And uh, I think it'd be great if we get that out for wider consumption.
1: Yes, it was recorded on video. Uh, There's obviously, you have to kind of think about uh, the rights and, um, uh, you know, getting uh, the speakers on board with it and so on. But I think some of it we will publish. And uh, also now we're starting to plan next year's conference, which will be 12th and 13th of November 2018. And we have a couple of. Speakers, very, very good speakers confirmed so far. And uh, we also have made a survey, so we kind of know some things we, we want to improve for next year. We want to have to give people a little bit more time to network and maybe get uh, the, the sessions to, to, to be a little bit more, uh, what you call it, uh, interactive. Mm. So, little things like that, but, but uh, overall, um, I think we got we got very good uh, response from the survey. So, uh, I was really happy with it. I have to say, I, I think I said this on Instagram or Twitter or something, for me personally, uh, being involved and interested in, in these issues and getting the opportunity to arrange something like this, uh, not only from a data protection point of view, but also from a legal tech point of view. Uh, the, the whole theme was, you know, new technology and the privacy implications of these technologies. So for me, that was easily one of the highlights of my career, actually, to, to see this come together. And it was really cool to be in the room, see everybody in the same room together talking yeah. about this stuff and all the conversations off stage and, and on stage and um, all the new people coming together and talking about all this stuff. And not only lawyers, but data protection officers from startups and big companies like MasterCard and Cisco and Sony and all that. And then you and then some of my old teachers from Stockholm University and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was uh, really, really cool. And now afterwards, because I've been working with this for half a year, almost full time, and now it's kind of empty. So w- what now? Now I, can, now I have time to do stuff like this, to do the podcast and blog and, and uh, uh, all the other stuff. But, um, yeah, we're, we're already... Getting ready for for next year. So,
0: yeah. Well, I, I've I've already got it in my my diary, and I, I'm going to plan on hopefully coming out yeah. to Stockholm for a little bit longer than I was able to do.
1: Yeah, Ho- um, hopefully hope we'll be around. Uh, it's still early, so so let's talk. Uh, yeah. When, when it draws near, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't been able to. There's been a couple of conferences this fall that I haven't had time to go to because I've been busy with this. So mm. I'm sorry I wasn't. Um, at the conference, I think it was it the Law Society that organised. Yes, in London, we, we did a uh, yeah.
0: legal tech uh, conference. The first yes. time the, the Law Society of England and Wales has done um, something on that sort of scale. Um, when it was quite, as is always the, the sort of challenge with these things, is it, it it's a matter of drawing it together, getting an agenda together, marketing the event, getting out there, and just doing it and getting it done. And we had a a pretty successful event. We've had some good feedback and we're looking to then replicate that with another event in September 2018. And I think we're going to do a sort of um, a a slightly smaller scale event in April, um, just as a sort of mop up and also a sort of pre-GDPR coming in as well Mm. uh, in April. So we're already looking at plans for that. Uh, and I think um, I'll certainly um, let you know and hopefully we can let our, our listeners know as well when that's coming up um, and there's also um, a, uh, a date for the diary I'm just going to check it now is the British Legal Technology Forum All which right, will yeah. come up yeah. in um, spring of uh, 2018 and that is If I just check, I'm just going through December, January, February. Hopefully it's in my diary. I really hope so. Um, Maybe it isn't. I thought it was. Um, Oh, yes. There we go. Oh, dear. I'm looking for some. It's Tuesday, the 13th of March, 2018. (laughs) Um, So uh, that's when that will be taking off. So in spring of 2018, that is the largest legal tech um, expo in Europe or oh, the biggest event of its type taking place outside of the United States. I'll be chairing a stage there for the day and um, we'll have some great speakers lined up. Um, already booked is we've got Dave Coplin who's the chief Envisi- former chief envisaging officer of Microsoft. He actually spoke at the Law Society Legal Tech Conference. Uh, and was very very good, uh, and uh, he's going to be at that conference as well. They always have some really good speakers, you know, big tentpole personalities that you've heard of, yeah. uh, which which is always good. And that will be at Old Billingsgate on the Tuesday, the thirteenth of March, twenty eighteen. So if you are in or around London, I can highly recommend dropping in to Old Billingsgate on that date for that event when there'll be yeah. probably the best yeah. part of fifteen hundred people there.
1: Yeah. I know these things are getting absolutely massive. Uh, I think I've attended at least one of their conferences, and I also know that the Legal Geek conference is exploding. I think there was—I mean, y- you were there, weren't you? I was, as
0: yeah. was uh, Richard Tromans oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. We had yeah. a really good yeah. chat. He yeah. he chaired a couple of panels. Um, what was—I mean—that that they had that the Legal Geek conference for the first time in July of. Um, that's so, it was in autumn of 2016 they yes. did for the first time yes. and they did it again in uh, this year they had they went from 500 people last year to 1200 people this year uh, and that was incredible growth yes. really high quality events some really good exhibitors. Uh, and a massive main conference hall that was packed all throughout the day, standing room only. Yes, uh, and that was um, a, a very, yeah, really good event. And it was the sort of things that, like, like you were saying about the the brilliant conversations, uh, Frederick, at, at the uh, the Nordic Privacy Arena. Yes, my my takeaway from um, the the Legal Geek was just. You're forever walking into people that you know and sort of stopping and having conversations, and uh, that was um, what my sort of big memory of that event because uh, it was uh, so so well um, supported and it's uh, there's, there's a growing community now in terms of legal tech and, and security and, and they were all out there in force on that day.
1: Yeah. I had the same experience at the VQ Forum that I think I've mentioned a couple of times mm-hmm. in this podcast. It's the biggest one we have in Sweden. And uh, I was supposed to speak there. Uh, Richard Romans did. Uh, I didn't have time for it. But I was there a couple of hours and listened. So, um, one of the exciting things, I mean, off stage again, uh, it was really cool to see old colleagues and uh, it's starting to, to become like this community. And also, you meet new people. I met a whole European uh IBM Watson team for example we had a chat and i had my uh my ross t-shirt that i got from Andrew Aruda at uh, I, I think it was yeah half a year ago uh, which was very popular because ross is kind of this i don't know they're they're far from the only ai company uh, legal ai company in the world but it's like the 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 reference it's mentioned in, in i think every Speech I heard at that conference, so it was pretty funny walking around in that, and also yes. obviously meeting the, the the Watson team because they work closely with with Watson. But so I was at that event, and uh, I wasn't in Finland first of November for the Legal Design Summit, which also just you know exploded. They had I think six hundred people or something like that uh, just for Legal Design, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't there, but I've I've talked to a couple of people who were there, and I'm just um, before this uh, recording I was writing up a, a little blog post about that in English so I will link that to you and uh, legal geek I I didn't have time for I really want to go next year but uh, let me give you a heads up I'm going to actually be the legal geek geek of the week <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of yeah. um, this week legal, oh, geek, fantastic. legal geek geek of the week this week um yeah, so I don't think it's up yet, but it will be up soon. A short little interview about what's going on in Sweden and, and so on. So, yeah, yeah, fantastic. So it's kind of, yeah, it's it's um, a lot of stuff happening, and it's it's really fun, really cool, but also a lot of work to to arrange something like this. So um, now when I go to conferences, I've, I've done a couple of things like this before, but not on this scale. So now when I go to conferences or when I see... Um, Something like you know what's going on in Brussels today, or um, legal geek stuff like that. Uh, I'm very mindful of how much goes into it, just the, the logistics of the whole thing. Um, so I'm a lot more uh, respectful and understanding if things don't go I- exactly according to plan. So yes, yeah, because yeah. it's really easy to go to these things and you know, oh, you know, the coffee was a little bit cold or whatever. <laughs> just, just, you know, getting everything into place it's really really challenging and this uh i think from what i heard it, it went pretty smoothly on the surface uh the privacy arena but uh I, did. I, I can did. I, I can assure you my mobile phone and my computer and my brain was running pretty hot uh for 48 hours so and,
0: yes yeah well i i think when when we're looking at um next year i think uh we, we can look at, I'm sure it'll be a, an even bigger and, and better and more successful event and probably even more hard work for you. So I hope that I you're able to have the um, support and administration I, help to, yeah, uh, I, I was to support s- you I, in that.
1: I was going to say that. Uh, th- there's a difference now because now we've learned a lot of things and we already know what we want to do next year. We, um, we have the feedback. We have a whole year because last time we didn't have a whole year. Now we have yeah. a whole year to plan it and we're also going to use... Um, um, yeah, we're gonna have sufficient staff, staffing for it, and, and so on. So it's it's gonna be um, uh, yeah, it's gonna be great. I think I think it's gonna be even better next year. Good. Yeah.
0: And I think we should we should. Um, who knows? Uh, as as our podcast rolls on, it might be quite nice to see if we could do perhaps a live podcast recording with a live audience.
1: Yeah. Um, uh,
0: as a sort of fr- <laughs> and- fringe conference event, I think that would be a quite yeah, nice thing to I,
1: do. I I, uh, I actually had that. Um, uh, I wanted to do something like that at the conference, but uh, we didn't really get it together. I had a, I, this idea we, we would have a, a, a podcast on stage or in in the the sponsor coffee room, but uh, it didn't really happen. But there was a, a podcast there um, interviewing Mark Rothenberg, so there will be a, a, an interview with him up, and I'll link that as well when when it's up. So, and this is this was um, oh you you know if you. If you remember the panel about legislation um, with Joe Kanatachi and a couple yes. of others and Morten Schultz. Morten Schultz is a Swedish law professor who runs an institute that mainly deals with um, cyberbullying and hate speech and, and so forth. So that institute, it was their podcast that were there interviewing Mark Rotenberg. Yeah. So that will be up soon, I think. But uh, that would be really cool to have something like that. And also maybe to bring in some some guests, just, uh, just now during this recording, I, I actually invited Jennifer Baker, uh, who you mentioned, uh, our, our moderate, yes. moderator, but she's probably busy in Brussels because she's not answering, because, but maybe she could have come on and said a few words, but uh, something like that in the future, for sure. And, yes. Uh,
0: well, I think I know. I, having spoken to Jennifer, I think yes should be should be really keen to um, to contribute. Yes. And um, I'm actually in Brussels on Monday and Tuesday of next week, so hopefully right. I'll be able to um, right. uh, to get in touch with Jennifer. while I'm out there as well. Is, yeah. is my plan? But as is yeah. always the way with these things, as you say, when a conference gets going, who knows? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: But uh, it's difficult to get everybody's calendars to line up. But uh, if we can do something like that, it would be cool and for sure i i would love to do a, a podcast on um uh, the responsibility of the the big it companies facebook google and so forth and and uh, the algorithms yes something like that you know um maybe uh, maybe about me too but maybe also in general and and uh, all these uh, proposals that are coming out of uh, from politicians everywhere so Mm. I think that would be a, and that would also I think be something we should probably touch upon in the next privacy arena. Yes. So definitely. Uh, so but we have as I said, we have a year to plan that, so no worries. But uh okay, so anything else?
0: No, it's been uh, good good to um to review all of those things with you, Frederick. So uh yeah, thank this, you for uh was, having me on the podcast. Uh,
1: <laughs> again, again, uh you, you want to talk for like twenty hours and then you end up talking for one hour plus, and we haven't even basically touched upon more than uh, uh, two or three of the, the sessions, but you can't go through everything. But anyway, it was really fun, and it was great having you at the conference
0: yeah thank you for the invitation it was great to be in uh uh stockholm and uh, i really enjoyed the event um uh, you you did fantastically to put it together and certainly certainly from the surface it went to look as well it went very very smoothly so yes congratulations there and uh, i'm already looking forward to a bigger and better nordic privacy arena in 2018.